Jewish Latin Princess, Episode 31, Wendy Sachs, author of Fearless and Free. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess, everyone. I'm Yael Trush, your host. So happy to be back. Have you ever changed career paths or felt stuck in the cusp of of professional change? Have you been forced to change because you were fired or perhaps you left your career to raise your children and after a few years you want to go back into the workforce and you're wondering, how do I go back? Well, today's guest is full of priceless advice for these kinds of transitions. Wendy Sachs is the author of the new book, Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. Oprah Magazine calls the book a title to pick up now. Wendy is also an Emmy Award-winning TV news producer. She's worked on NBC's Dateline, Fox, and CNN. She was also a Capitol Hill press secretary and a PR executive. And guess what I discovered during this interview? Wendy's husband used to be my boss. I didn't say it on the interview, um, but I realized when she said something uh, that gave me a cue, and then I asked her offline, and yes, so it was. I worked for APAC in New York City for a very short period of time before I got married and moved to Israel, and uh, Wendy's husband was my boss. Ladies, we are living in an era of professional reinvention, and women in particular are looking to reinvent themselves professionally more often than men, as many of us leave the workforce for a couple of years and then find ourselves trying to go back or recreate, do something different, do something new, um, something that works with our new lifestyle, perhaps. In our conversation, we talk about how to transition without trepidation, how to traverse the roadblocks and dance with the fears we harbor about failure the new wave of feminism, and the positive trends that we are seeing from it. Stay tuned as Wendy speaks from her own personal experiences, pivoting so much in her career, she jokes she's constantly pirouetting, sometimes out of choice, other times out of necessity. Um, Just to give you a little bit of a warning, there is one instance in the interview where there is an adult word. So if you listen next to your little ones, um, just be mindful of that. And here's the lovely and wise Wendy Sachs. Wendy Sachs, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the congratulations, and I'm excited to be on your show. Fearless and Free, How Smart Women Pivot and Relaunch Their Careers. I have to tell you, Wendy, this book made me so proud and so happy. I mean, it needed to be out there. It touches on core issues that women face as they have to pivot in their professional lives. And sometimes that pivot is intense. It's full of uncertainty. It can feel painful, scary, and almost clumsy, I would say. But we still want to come out on the other side with our dignities intact and doing work that we love and that aligns with our purpose and our values and making the living that we want to make for our families. And this is not new to you. You you describe yourself as the master, as a master of, of the career pivot. And so in many ways, this 
um, this book was birthed from uh, your own firsthand experience. So take us back a little bit and um, tell us about your own pivots and the trials that happened along the way. Um, yeah, I really say that I've pivoted so much in my career that I'm practically pirouetting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I don't always plan to pivot. You know, I've lost my job. I've been fired from jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had to really figure out what to do next. Um, so I also, you know, my industries, I've been in media and publishing and news, and those are industries that have really been disrupted because of digital right. in the past, you know, five years, 10 years for sure. And everyone's younger and younger, you know, mm -hmm. and the, the sort of, this sort of panic of being able to even get a job and stay employable, that becomes a very real concern. So I think I've been always trying to stay ahead of it all, you know, be aware of what was coming down next and not get myself in a position where I wouldn't be able to get a job. I mean, I, I truly believe that fear is what has motivated me. Fear, right. And so, so talk to us about the fear. How did you, you interviewed a lot of women in, in the book that were able to get over that fear and, um, make that pivot. What did you, what do we learn from there? How, how, how have they jumped over the fear hurdle and succeeded? Well, I mean, I think that the fastest way to get over fear is actually to fail. And I really, truly believe I wouldn't have been writing the book Fearless and Free if I hadn't failed as many times as I have, if I mm -hmm. hadn't tried as many things and not succeeded, if I hadn't been fired. Um, what happens is, you know, you sort of by, by failing, you really build up your confidence, right? You realize that there, you're going to survive. There's no place else to go. Mm -hmm. And you can pick yourself up and move forward. Um, so I, I do really love my chapter on failure and women who got over those hurdles. And one in particular person, um, Reshma Saujani, she's unbelievable. She runs Girls Who Code. She's a woman who applied to Yale Law School three times before getting in. Um, she ran for office, lost in a landslide in a congressional race in New York City. She ran for public advocate in New York City. She also lost. She talks about this real grieving process she mm -hmm. has around failure. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, Girls Who Code came out out of her loss of running for office. So great things do happen out of what seems like an epic fail, you know. Right. Um, so I, I do believe that it's about having the courage to move forward and to take chances and the fastest way to grow that confidence, which is really what I found so interesting and, and I focused a lot on is understanding what drives women, how women can be different than men when it comes to confidence, how our fear of rejection and judgment um, can really hold us back. And what I really found was that the fastest way to become confident is to take risks. Right. But we tend to be more risk averse, right? And like you said, we have that, that we're a little, I, I don't know if we're hardwired or what it is, but we have this need to f be accepted or be liked, right? That sometimes holds us back. Oh, absolutely. And there are studies that show that 
confidence is genetic, that it's an inherited trait, mm-hmm. just the way, you know, blue eyes or intelligence or curly hair is. Some people seem to be predisposed to have mo- having more of it. And there is definitely a hormonal component that testosterone has been found to be linked to, to confidence, which may not surprise people who think, you know, men may be perceived or come off as you know, more confident than, than women. And, and then on the other side of that, you know, I, because I feel like that could be a radioactive statement to make women often play down confidence because it's not, um, the perception is we're not coming out as bombastic. We're not coming out, you know, pounding the table and, and demanding attention. That is not well perceived. It is it is not well liked. I was going to say there's that double bind still that it's such a tricky thing. You want to be I remember growing up like we wanted to we were taught to be assertive, yet sometimes it just played against us. I remember vividly and then we almost dumb it down, which again plays against us. So we're kind of in a we're stuck. <laughs> There's no question about that, you know, and I write about the double bind that women in leadership face. I talk even about the election mm-hmm. and Hillary, how Hillary Clinton was perceived um, as, you know, not being authentic enough, not being warm enough, not being uh, smiley enough or being too smiley or whatever <laughs> it was. Whatever she did, it was just wrong. <laughs> it was just wrong. And I talk about this great Jimmy Kimmel sketch where she, uh, he's, she's standing, you know, at the podium about to give a stump speech and he's just mansplaining to her. He was like, wait, speak up. Wait, your voice is too shrill. Wait, smile more. Wait, you look like a Lakers girl, you know, whatever. And, and he was like, what is it about you? What is it about you? You know, what's wrong? Oh, I know you're not a man. That's <laughs> what the problem is. You're not a man. And I think that just sort of, you know, that was obviously a real spoof on everything that was happening during the election. But whether you were, you know, this was not even a partisan issue necessarily. Right. Because, you know, Bernie Sanders was beloved by by many and he was as gruff and as disheveled and as finger thrusting and as loud and screaming and he was a mess and yet he was found to be adorable and authentic. Right, right. So that is definitely, it's definitely a real issue that um, women in leadership face. And it's until that we start listening to women differently, hearing women differently and women hearing women differently. You know, a lot of the haters out there are women on women who just don't like, you know, don't like that perception of women as leaders or don't like a very strong or loud woman. Yes, yes. Although, isn't it true? Or do you feel that that's starting to change? I mean, I feel like we're in a new wave of solidarity and sisterhood of collaboration versus competition and the world of women in the workplace and in business, which I'm a huge proponent of. And sadly, and honestly, and maybe it's the same, we're around the same age, maybe it was true for you too. I didn't see that in the late 90s and 2000s when I was formally out there in the corporate world and the workforce. And I probably saw the opposite, which I remember being totally disappointing and in many ways very unsettling that women competing with each other. And now I see the trend changing so much for the better. And I think you touch on that in the book. The there's So tell us about the importance of this shift and what is it doing for all of us? I feel like you must have been sitting in on some speeches I've been giving recently because that's exactly <laughs> what I've been saying. Really? That's exactly what I'm saying. 
Yes, I do. You know, as a Gen Xer coming up through the ranks, I've worked in in businesses that are largely female in media, mm-hmm. but I never really felt that women were trying to raise me up with them. I didn't feel like my boss was really trying to lift me as she was rising. Right. It didn't feel like there was sort of a smaller piece of the pie. And I, it never felt like it was like a super aggressive cat fight, but I didn't feel like I had a support. I definitely didn't feel like I had a sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that what's happening with millennial women is that there is a demand for, you know, first of all, to be heard, certainly coming out of this election. I mean, we're seeing it with all of these um you know, reports and women coming forward with all of these different humiliation, sexual assault, sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. And finally, it's like, it's like there is this wave, there is a momentum and there is a connection between everything that's happening. There's no question that there is a sense of sisterhood and a a sense of we're not going to take it any longer. And we need to be able to, you know, come together and support each other and support the sisterhood. So I think we're seeing this on many different levels from the workplace to women feeling a more of an imperative to bring other women up oh, with them and right. to support other women right. to, uh, to, you know, on a bigger social level of hearing women and hearing these sort of unbelievable amount of abuse that women have withstood for generations and stayed silent for fear of retribution, for fear of being told that they're lying, for fear of being blamed. There's something changing right now. And it's incredible. And even the idea of feminism, you know, when I was in college, which was like a million years ago now, (laughs) um, you know, feminism was very frumpy. It was very fringe. It was not cool and sexy and chic. There was no Beyonce, you know, wearing t-shirts. Beyonce was probably like in preschool, but you know, it's, it has really changed. Even the conversations we're having about being proud to be a feminist, all of that, there's been a huge shift happening culturally. Well, because I feel, and tell me if this would be a fair statement or if you would agree, but I feel that it's a different feminism in terms of it's not so much about being equal to men as much as about embracing our feminine qualities and strengths unapologetically and leaning into them in order to achieve what we want. And that could be the same things that men are achieving, but it's not playing down who we are and modeling more, a more masculine way of being, but more embracing our, our, you know, our unique strengths and taking that on to the top. (laughs) So I would say yes and no to that. Um, I would definitely say that we do want to be treated as equally as men when it comes to pay. Yes. Right. I mean, the, the, the pay gap is still tremendous, tremendous and having the opportunities. And also we want the workforce to, you know, the, the paradigm of the workforce needs needs to change to allow for flexibility, to allow for, for parenthood. Right. To, um, you know, because the way that it, has, that it has been, it has been a very male-structured environment that doesn't allow women to really be become mothers mm-hmm. and to stay in the workforce and to move forward, which is why we see massive drop-offs of women in the workforce after they have children or women just never reaching for the corner office because it just seems so incredibly unattainable right. and not be, you know, not compatible with raising a family. Right, right, right. And I, and I remember when I was in my early 20s, I must have been like 22, and I would see these, uh, the very few women who were my superiors, and I work in a world, in investment banking, mostly a world of men. And I remember mm-hmm. telling my mother, who's an attorney, Ma, I just, 
I don't see how this is ever going to work. Like these women in their 40s, they are miserable. And again, I never felt that support or that they were helping me up along the way. I just felt like they never saw their kid. They never saw their spouse. They were trying so hard to stay where they were and keep rising against, you know, our male bosses. And it was just so striking to me. But anyway, on the positive side, um, there are um, companies and there are workplaces who are recognizing um, the research that has been prevailing out there about female leadership and how it's so good for the bottom line. And so and and of course, there's so many women, like we said before, who are we are helping each other, you know, do what we need to do and rise and we're lifting each other up. So all of these are very positive changes. Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, just sort of going back to what you did say before, is you know, how we want to embrace our femininity or embrace Mm -hmm. our our being female. I I do want to agree with that. I mean, there's for sure there are studies that show that women at the top are, you know, good for the bottom line of a business. We're collaborators. We know how to work as a team. We know how to support each other. Our method of leadership is perhaps different than a man's typical, you know, way that he leads. And so embracing a female leadership model is definitely, um, if not an imperative right now, it's definitely being looked at and reevaluated and considered and understood. And there's just so much that needs to be done as far as training and getting rid of even unconscious gender bias in the workplace, because that really exists. And that really is what holds women back as well. Yes, absolutely. And you talk in your book about our use of language that almost uh, like you use the word unconscious, almost we use it unconsciously to our own detriment and, and it, it belittles our or it diminishes our power, right? Sometimes. That's exactly right. You know, I, and I, my book is definitely not a memoir, but I write about a lot of my own experiences. And I had been told that I was too abrasive. I mean, of course, this is like the code word for like, you're too bitchy, you're too mm-hmm. abrasive, no one really likes you. <laughs> it was just, it's really horrifying to hear that. And so after one um, one of my bosses told me that, and I, of course, took it very personally because you don't want to be told that you're, you come across as abrasive. Um, I started adopting what one of my friends and one of my colleagues just sort of did naturally. And she was always saying, sorry, sorry, sorry. And I adopted that at my next job and it worked like a charm. It was <laughs> magic. I mean, no one thought I was abrasive. No one thought I was bitchy. I was very warm and friendly. I was also not very direct. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was, and it was sort of like wherever, you know, hey, where do I, sorry, where, where do I put this? Sorry, you know, um, I have a question. Just, you know, it was sort of a filler. It was sort of a, one of these shrinker words. You know, and there was others of them, the just and the actuallys and the am I making sense? Yes, that's a big and- one. Right. And and women just insert these into conversations because we want to come across a little softer, a little gentler. You know, as one woman described it to me, she said it's like a social lubricant, you know, which I thought was a great term. But it was just our way of softening what we were asking instead of coming across as so direct. And what I realized was this was not helpful. This was actually diminishing my power. And there are other ways to go about seeming, you know, soft and warm and friendly. And that's, you know, opening, whether you're in a meeting or it's an email, opening warm, 
you know, talking about whatever happened over the weekend, you know, the Jets game, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. to sort of establish a relationship, be direct in the meeting and then end in a warm way. And the same can be said with your emails to really make sure you're scrubbing your emails for all of those shrinker words, you know, start warm, end warm, but get to the point. And, you know, men do do not, by the way, men do not agonize about these things. Men do not think about these things. I know. And women, we tend to overthink and worry and, you know, agonize that they didn't like me. I came across, you know, too rough. Um, I'm too direct. And, you know, it, it really is what can hold us back. And also something that I find men don't agonize about is they don't take things as personal. And we tend to... And it could be tied to that perfectionism or that wanting to be, to feel liked or whatever it is. But sometimes we very often, I remember my mother when I was growing up, say, stop taking it so personal. Like, you know, when I'd come call home, I used to live in Manhattan and I would call home with like issues at work or just things that wouldn't, you know, sit with me. It's not personal. It really is not. Trust me, you know, and she was right. But we tend to do that. Oh, there's no question. I mean, I could tell you even today, (laughs) I had emailed someone, a very sort of big person in the media world, haven't heard back. Actually, I emailed him last night and I started thinking, oh no, like what what happened? (laughs) Did he not really like the interview we did? Did he, you know, was I too aggressive? Was I too this? Was I too that? I mean, it's sort of amazing. And I, and, and in a million years, my husband would never think about it. He would think Correct. this guy's really busy. He gets 2 million emails a day. You know, there's just, it, it just don't worry about it. He liked you. It all went fine. Get over yourself. Right. And, and yet we don't. I mean, it is just really it's it's sort of incredible. And here I am. I study this stuff. I'm a rational person. I can take a step back. And yet still, until I get a response, I will be a little bit nervous right. <laughs> thinking, but- you know, what happened? Did I do something? You know, did I do something wrong? You know, whatever. Those um, little voices in our head. Uh, it's really hard. And you really just want to quiet those voices. Yes. And you really need we to take a step to. back. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We have to quiet them, right? Otherwise, we won't move forward. Um, when did you have daughter? Do you have a daughter? You have two boys? I do. I no. I have a. I have a son and a daughter. So, <laughs> I have two girls. Actually, I have two two sons and two daughters. How do we? How do we do this? Um, with our daughter. How do we change this for the better for our girls? Do you think? I think that really it is an imperative that we teach our girls not forget about being perfect. You know, we hear a lot about we want girls to be perfect and we, we praise the boys who take risks. Uh, Aside from just being perfect, I think that we need to stop teaching our girls to be be so polite. That's the Mm -hmm. other P word because being polite means you're not being disruptive, right? And now today we're celebrating disruptors, but being polite is the opposite of disruption. We're keeping our heads down when we're polite. We're trying to be the good girl. We're trying not to create any conflict. And so I think by using our voice and making sure that our girls are speaking up for themselves, even if it's not the most polite thing to do, even if it's not, you know, the, the nicest thing to do, but to be able to speak up for themselves and speak up for others is really important to building that confidence and to 
allowing themselves to take risks too, because you know what, when you speak up, you're putting yourself in a risky situation. But you have much more to gain, right? So teaching them to just, we have to all learn to be more uncomfortable and sit in an uncomfortable place because that's often where we're doing the right thing, even if it, it could be a stretch for us, right? That's exactly right. I talk about getting comfortable in the uncomfortable, which is a great Navy SEALs expression, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I think it's it's pithy and it's not just for the military, um, but it's exactly, that's where the growth happens. Yes. So when your kids are going in, and I think we, as parents, we sort of naturally do that. Your child might be afraid to try out for the soccer team and you push them to try out. Maybe they won't make it. Maybe they will. But even that experience of putting themselves out there participating in the school play, even if they're terrified, all of those little steps along the way. But then as grownups, we sometimes forget about that, right? We think that we no longer need to do that. And you become more fearful, especially if you are in a job that where you're feeling really complacent, you haven't really done, hadn't had much of a change in many years. Or if you're a mom and you've taken yourself out of the workforce to raise your children, Mm -hmm. and now you're really sort of terrified about getting back in and you think, oh my God, I can't do anything anymore. Or the world's changed since I took time off. I used to be in marketing. The whole marketing world has changed, whatever that industry may be. Right, right, right. You know, you just reminded me before we get back to talking about us adults, when it comes to our kids. I had one of my daughters, she's almost 10, and she was starting earlier this year to um, sort of market herself as a mother's helper, a babysitter, and she's really, really good at it. And But when it came to email mothers, like, this is what I'm going to charge, she didn't want to do it. And of course, like you said, I push, you have to do it. And, you know, and afterwards, when she you know, they agreed to her price and she got paid what she, you know, what she deserved for her age or what she we, we felt was, you know, fair. She felt so good about herself. And over time, I see that even though sometimes it's uncomfortable for her and I see like she doesn't want to type it, um, she still does it. She knows she has to get paid a certain amount and she has to put it out there. Otherwise, like I told her, how do you know you're going to get it? You have to say it up front, you know, right? Oh, ask. absolutely. You have to ask. You have to be able to put yourself out there. Um, and negotiations are definitely an area where women struggle. I mean, there's, yes. this is not my own personal take on it, but it is, you know, study after study shows that. And it's amazing because women are really good at negotiating for others. others. We're, yes. we're really good at, yeah, we're really good at doing it for others. Terrible at doing it for ourselves. Money makes us feel very squeamish. We also tend to underestimate our value. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to so, give our services for free, which oh you, I think gosh. you've written about before. I have. I did. I wrote one piece called "Giving It Up for Free." I, I I'm definitely um, still to blame for doing that time to time. But yeah, you just feel like, am I really worth that? I don't know. It seems like a lot of money, and we start second guessing ourselves. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, and, and I guess that's where having this network or, you know, this sponsorship of, of other women can be so helpful um, because it can help us feel more confident and feel like we have to make that ask. And we have we have a, a group of cheerleaders. I guess there might be a better term for that, but just sponsorship of other women who who vouch for us and who believe in us and give us the confidence to, yes, go make that call. Yes, go ask for that rate. Go, you know, go email this person or I'll make this introduction for you and you take it from there, right? That sponsorship is so important. It really is. I mean, it's just knowing that someone has your back. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But, you know, it, what, what I would even talk about is more about building not just individual sponsors or mentors because, look, there's a lot of pressure on it. Can you, will you be my mentor? You know, that's sort of a heavy ask. Yeah, it feels heavy and hard and awkward. <laughs> Absolutely. And not really realistic for a lot of people. So yeah. it's building more of a sisterhood of a network. It's building, you know, building out. Um, not just relying on one person. Yeah. And um, nowadays, you just reminded me that I wanted to ask you about this because it's so relevant to anyone, not just those of us who are in the midst of a pivot, even to people who are feel stable in their career path or in their nine to five. And that's the building your personal brand and being intentional about crafting our own stories and advocating for ourselves. But it can be painful. It can feel aggressive and like you're out there bragging, um, especially if you're an introvert. Um, but how, how do you think we can cultivate that personal brand and get over feeling too self-promotional? Well, I think that we have to really know that today it's all about marketing ourselves mm -hmm. and that we don't, you know, it's not, it's not bragging to tell people what you're doing. You know, it's branding. And today, whether you like it or not, everyone's pretty much their own brand and you have to let people know what it is that you do well. Exactly. And you can't be afraid about, about shouting it out because you want to be top of mind when people are thinking about certain jobs or certain fits or, you know, what they're looking for, you come to mind without knowing what it is that you do, what your, you know, as a young kid say, what your superpower is, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you may not be, no, you may be overlooked. You know, people are not going to necessarily be thinking of you. Right. And isn't that tied to what you call engineering serendipity as well? Tell us about that. So engineering serendipity is really, you know, well, first, first, let's just talk for a second about serendipity, which I think a lot of people think is sort of a happy accident, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like great things happen. Um, and some people are just really, really lucky. Um, but serendipity is actually something that can be engineered. It's something that involves more of you sort of intentionally making a move and seizing an opportunity and being ready for that opportunity and not letting it pass you up. Like you've done some of your homework. You know who's going to be in the room if you go to an event. You know who's going to be at a meeting. You know who's going to be at a party or a cocktail you know, party. Um, you're, you know who's going to be at a networking event. You, but you've done some of the work. You've laid the groundwork. And now you're ready to seize on that opportunity. Now you're ready to actually, you know, take charge and move forward. Um, that is what's, that is what is very different than just, you know, good luck, good fortune, um, magic happening. Mm -hmm. You're able to create that magic for yourself. Yeah, you're able to create it for yourself. It's almost like, you know, we have this concept in Judaism of divine providence where, you know, That's things right. are happening for a reason. They're not coincidence, but you have to, you have to do your part. It's not like God is, you know, God is working his magic, but you have to work yours and be open to it and build a vessel for these things to happen. You have to build a conduit sort of, you know. Um, so that's, you have to engineer it. You have to go that's out there, right. talk that's to right. people, um, send yeah. those emails, you know, um, you can't just wait for it to happen. You absolutely. really have to sort of go out there and seize it. And then, you know, yeah, a little bit of luck is involved, right? But you've also sort of set things into motion. Yes. And I think that's the difference between pure luck and serendipity. You've absolutely. created the momentum for it. Yes. Yes. You have to take action. It's all about the action. It's all about the action. All about That's the action. And I feel, Wendy, like you are 
yourself in the midst of a pivot as we speak. Publishing this book has opened a number of different possibilities for you. Um, What are you doing different now based on what you've learned from the women you interviewed? Um, What am I doing different? Well, right now I'm working on a documentary um, about women running for office. Mm. And, you know, I'm doing, I'm sort of exploring a whole bunch of different avenues now. You know, it's fun. I really like the public speaking and, you know, for my next, for my next pivot, I, whatever it is that I'm going to be doing, it's, I'm looking to help women, help advance women, help do the storytelling around female entrepreneurs and business leaders and, you know, telling their stories. Right, right, right. So this really has, um, almost like you've carved out uh, a niche that now, if, even if you look back at your career, it feels natural it, it makes sense for you, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Wendy, so let's do a let's switch gears a little bit to some Jewish topics. I'm curious about um, any Jewish traditions that you've brought into your home, perhaps because you learned them in your parents home, and you wanted to bring them in, or perhaps your husband brought them in, or maybe as an adult, you just took them on and decided this is very important for me. And, and you know, we want to do it anything that's particularly important that you bring to your home. You mean for like Jewish, Jewish traditions, holidays, yeah, Jewish, Jewish customs, something that something Jewish that is just very important to you. You've brought sure. Well, home. Israel is a very big deal mm. in, a, in our house. My, my husband's the uh, director, uh, the Northeast director of APAC, so oh. Israel is a very big deal for us. That is so cool. Do you get to go like super often? Uh, he goes every year, once or twice a year, and as a family, we've been there twice because my kids were. Um, Bar and Mitzvah there. Very nice. We're so looking forward to going back. My husband and I lived there our, the first year of our marriage, and um, we're planning to go back for my son's Bar Mitzvah. So it's uh, oh, um, fantastic. Oh, I'm itching. It's like so exciting. My husband was there twice um, earlier this year, and he told me, yeah, Elle, you're just not going to believe it. Believe it. It just gets better and better. <laughs> it does. When was the last time that you were there? Uh, 10 years ago. No, oh, more. Yeah. More. Oh, yeah. yeah. 11 years ago, something like that. Yeah. So right. I'm so ready to go back. <laughs> All right, Wendy, let's do some JLP fill in the blanks. Okay. And this is the part of the show where I tell you a statement and you fill it with the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Okay, sure. All right. Um, when, and they, these can get a little spiritual. So just, uh, just to give you a heads up. Okay. Okay. I'm Wendy Sachs and I feel most spiritual when. When I'm at Soul Cycle. <laughs> <laughs> that is a first for me. But I, I do have to say there's something about the endorphins and exercise that just <laughs> totally I love it. I mean there's a there's a good reason it's called Soul Cycle. It really it really is very quite uplifting for the soul. Oh, you're so funny. All right. My favorite mitzvah or one that I connect with the most is? Um, oh, that's a good one. Um we live in a very diverse community. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just a few miles from Newark. Um, my my kids' high school is sixty percent African American. Wow! So I feel like when we are having these conversations about race, and there's been some anti-Semitic events in in our neighborhood, but when we came together for Syrian refugees, and there's a lot of coming together. It's a very inclusive, di- diverse community. So um, I feel like the biggest mitzvahs, I guess, are when I'm participating in those community conversations. It's so important. So beautiful. I love that. My fondest, sweetest Jewish memory is? The Hanukkah parties that oh. my 
parents would give and that I continued to do when my kids were little. Really? Very yeah. nice. Um, I think I read once years ago, you wrote a piece about your kids on Hanukkah versus Christmas, right? I think probably this sounds familiar. <laughs> Ma, something I wished I had learned about Judaism growing up is? Hmm. Um, that depending on what temple you're in, you're not going to recognize all of the tunes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Get ready to be uncomfortable if you change temples, right? <laughs> That's right. When I give tzedakah charity, I like to give to? Um, the IDF. Oh, so super cool. So super cool. Would you be okay if your son decides to join, by the way? Oh, there's no chance he will. He spent the summer in Israel and absolutely hated all they, they had to do a boot camp and it was he had he had actually dropped out. <laughs> so there's not even a not a chance that he'll be joining the IDF. Um finally, I'm Wendy Sachs and today I'm most grateful for my family. Oh, Wendy Sachs, thank you so much for joining me today. It, this was really fun, really nice, so much wisdom. And, you know, thank you for doing it. It's really a testament to your generosity of spirit. You're living and breathing what you teach us in your book. Everyone, it's fearless and free. How smart women pivot and relaunch their careers. A must read, really, you've inspired me. And I'm sure you've, you know, inspired so many others to take those risks, reinvent yourselves, go for it, fearless. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and having you here again. I know there's so much more to come from Wendy Sachs. So I'd love to cheer you on along the way. Keep us posted. Thank you so much, Yael. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much to Wendy for stopping by. If you'd like to learn more about Wendy Sachs, visit wendysachs.com or follow her on Twitter at Wendy Sachs. Thanks everyone for being here. Please leave a review and feel free to email me as you spot women that you'd like to see featured on the show. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit JewishLatinPrincess.com.